Amen. Thank you, Carly. Let's uh, go to the Lord in prayer this morning. We begin to open his word. Father God, we are so grateful for just who you are. Thank you for the victory that we do have over the devil. Your word says, greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. We serve and worship the all-powerful, the almighty God. And thank you for making that possible through your son, Jesus Christ. And Lord, as we open your word this morning, I just pray that, God, you would make our hearts that fertile soil to receive it. That you would plant it, Lord, and that it would grow and bear fruit. For some, it would be the fruit of salvation. For some, it would be the fruit of being instructed in the righteous living. Lord, for others, it might be a word of encouragement or hope. For others, it might be a reminder of something that they have forgotten to take advantage of. Lord, you know what you want to accomplish today. And so I pray that your word would go forth and not return to you void, but would accomplish everything for which you sent it. For we ask it in Jesus' name, for his sake, for his honor, for his glory. Amen. Have you ever had anybody tell you, um, or maybe even before you became a Christian, uh, that you would have to give up too much to get saved? Or maybe you were talking to them about giving their life to Jesus, and and they said that to you. Well, I I would, and it's not that I don't believe. I do believe, but I I just don't want to give up the way I'm living. I don't want to quit doing the things I'm doing. They're too fun. Well, one thing they're not, two things, actually, they're forgetting or that they don't know. Number one is that the pleasure of sin lasts only a little while. And secondly, they have no concept of what they get in return. And that's what I want to talk to you today in the next several weeks are the blessings of the gospel. What is given to us is greater than anything we ever had to forsake come to Christ. And yes, we are to repent of our sin, forsake our sin in our own way to embrace Christ. Uh, But the blessings we receive in coming to Christ are far greater. And it's not just a guarantee of heaven. I'm talking about the blessings that we enjoy here and now because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In our chapter today in Romans chapter 5, by the way, there is an outline on the back of your worship bulletin if you would like to take notes or follow along there. But I noticed as I was reading... uh, especially the first 11 verses of this chapter, that the have verb was repeated multiple times. Like in verse 2 and 11, he says, we have. In verse 1 and then 9 and 10, he says, having been. And then in verse 5, he says, has been. In other words, what Paul is trying to communicate is because of the fact that, remember Romans 1 through 3, the despicable persons we were without God, sinful, and because of what God made us in chapter 4 we studied, right with God, righteous with God by our faith in Jesus Christ, 
Now verse chapter 5 says, here's what you have. So are you following that outline with me? 1 through 3, Romans 1 through 3. We're terrible people without Jesus. But if we come to Jesus, we are made righteous. And once we're made righteous, we have these many wonderful things. And that's what I want to start talking about this morning. What we have. First of all, we have chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, having been justified, that is, having been made right with God by faith, we have what? Peace. With who? With God. Through who? The Lord Jesus Christ. You see, our sin put us at war with God. We declared war against God by choosing our own way instead of His. And every one of us has done that. Isaiah 53, 6, all of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Yes, we are sinners originally because of the sin of Adam, but the Bible says all of us are like sheep gone astray. Every one of us has turned his own way. And that way has been against God. The New Testament scriptures even call us enemies of God. Look at verse 10, chapter 5. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God. We used to be enemies before we were made right with God. Chapter 8, verse 7. I'm going to read it according to the New Living Translation. For the sinful nature is always hostile to God. You know, your sinful nature is an enemy of God. James 4, 4 reminds us that whoever makes himself a friend of the world, that is trying to go along to get along and doing the things that the world says is okay to do, makes himself an enemy of God. So our sinful nature declared war against God. The signers, how many of you have heard of the Declaration of Independence? Anybody? <laughs> All of us. Have you ever thought about that, what that meant? The Declaration of Independence, what were the signers of the Declaration of Independence declaring? They were declaring independence from who? Great Britain. They wanted these original 13 colonies that Great Britain started. They grew so much, and they wanted their, their problem was they were being taxed without any representation, and they wanted to be free. And so they wrote this Declaration of Independence. They signed it, and uh, they were saying, we no longer want to be under your authority, Great Britain. We want to be our own separate country. Well, what also was that a declaration of? War. They knew as they signed that Declaration of Independence, they were declaring war against Great Britain. Thank God that they did and that we won that in 1776 and we celebrated every July the 4th. But the correlation I want us to make is this. Our sin is a declaration of independence from God. It's saying, God, I want to go my own way. I want to do my own thing. I want to do it when I want to do it, how I want to do it, and I don't need or want any interference from you. I can handle my life on my own. It's a declaration of independence from God, but it's also a declaration of war against God. And let me tell you what, if you're an enemy of God, who you think is going to win? You think you're going to win? No, you won't win. We may have won our, our independence from Great Britain, 
but we will not win our independence from God. You cannot win that battle. If you die in that condition, you will forever pay the price in a place called hell for thinking you could live independently of God. In fact, God says, you want to live independently of me? I will let you forever in a place called hell. That's a real, literal place full of fire and brimstone. But this verse says we have peace. That is, if you've been justified by faith, if you've given your life to Jesus Christ and been made right with God, you have peace. That is, through the gospel of Jesus Christ, what Jesus did on the cross, God made a peace treaty with us. And like many peace treaties that were, came after much bloodshed, the one that God makes with us is also written in blood. Colossians 1.20, the Bible says, having made peace through the blood of his cross. It was what Jesus Christ did when he died on the cross. When those nails pierced his hands and his feet. When that thorn of, crown of thorns pierced his brow. When that spear plunged into his side and blood and water flowed, it was that that purchased this peace treaty for us. And this peace treaty declares all those who place their faith in Jesus Christ to be at peace with him. Think about it. To be at war with God. To be at odds with God. To be against God. And not only that, for God to be against you. That's serious. That's the condition of some of you this morning. You're against God. And God's against you. Because you have no relationship with Him through Jesus Christ. You're an enemy of God. Is that how you want to die? An enemy of God? Paul's saying we are, through faith, we can be friends of God. We can be at peace with God. Without Jesus, though, there can be no peace. Ephesians 2.14 tells us that He, Jesus, Himself is our peace. The prophet Isaiah spoke of the names Jesus would assume when He would come. In His first coming, when He was born, He said He will be called Wonderful. Say them with me. Counselor. Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. You see, when we know Jesus, we know peace. To be at odds with God, now I can, I who was an enemy, and all of us before we were saved were enemies of God. And now, because of what Jesus Christ did, we are at peace with God. No longer at war, at peace with God. I find it interesting, though, that there are some Christians or those who claim to be Christians that still feel that God is against them. They have been saved. They've been uh, filled with God's spirit, but yet they feel, still feel at odds with God. They feel as if God is against them. And nothing could be further from the truth. If truly you've been saved, God's not against you. God is for you. God is on your side. You say, but yes, I've still done, even though I'm saved, I've done things that I know are wrong. Yes, you have, and get, yes, you will. But God has made peace.
between you and him because of you have come through his son, Jesus Christ. You have peace with God. And this peace cannot be taken away. Jesus said, peace I leave with you. Not as the world gives, give I unto you. What kind of peace does the world give? What kind of peace does the world offer? The peace the world offers goes like this. If you do what I want you to do, then we can be friends. If you don't do what I want you to do, then we are what? Enemies. That's the kind of peace the world offers. That's not the kind of peace Jesus offers. Peace I leave with you. Not as the world gives, give I unto you. Let not your heart be what? Troubled. But many Christians live with troubled hearts because they think God's against them. God's not against you. Have you sinned? Yes. Does he know it? Yes. Is he pleased with your sin? No. But is he still at peace with you? Yes. Yes. This was such an important truth that Paul wanted sure that all of his readers understood it, which is why he opened every one of his letters like this. Grace and peace to you from God our Father through the Lord Jesus Christ. Now he was writing to a whole bunch of sinners in Corinth, in Ephesus, in Thessalonica, in Galatia, he wrote to Timothy, he wrote to Titus, he wrote to Philemon, all these sinful people. And he said, the first thing I want you to be aware of is God's grace and God's peace is multiplied to you. Listen, church, those of you who are born again by the blood of Jesus Christ, God's grace and God's peace is multiplied to you. You have not lost that peace with God. You cannot lose that peace with God. God is not your enemy. You feel that way when you sin, don't you? You know why? Because as Carly just saying, the devil's working on you. And you need to say to him, as Carly just reminded us, not today, devil. Not today. No, 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 not today. I still have peace with God. I've committed this sin and I'm going back to my God. I'm going back. To, to Jesus, and I'm going to confess that sin. And he says, if I confess that sin, he is faithful and just to forgive me of that sin and to cleanse me from all unrighteousness. Are you at peace with God today? I think sometimes a lot of Christians who truly are saved are not enjoying that peace relationship with him. They feel at odds with him, so therefore they don't draw near to him. What did God say in James? He said, draw near to me and I will draw near to you. God wants you to draw near to him. Don't feel at odds with him. If you've been saved, then he, you have peace. You have, present tense, peace. It's been paid for. You don't have to pay for it. It's already been paid for with the blood of Jesus Christ. Now the question this morning is, is do you have that peace? Are you sure that you have that peace? Have you established that relationship with God through your commitment to Jesus Christ? Have you been saved? Or are you still trying to live independently of Him, thinking you can handle this without Him? You're good enough without Him. Now this peace that God made with us through Jesus makes possible this next blessing of the gospel. 
For without this first blessing, we cannot enjoy the second blessing. And the second blessing is verse 2. Let's put it in context with verse 1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have what? Access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. We have access. Access. Do you have access everywhere you go? Are there places you can't go? Yeah. Tana and I made a trip one year to Washington, D.C. We could go just about anywhere. But guess what we couldn't go to and couldn't see? The one thing we kind of wanted to see, the one place we wanted to go into was closed. They denied us access. Guess where that was? The White House. Of course, we weren't too disappointed, but, but um, we couldn't go in there. We were denied access. None of us here today, I doubt, have free access to the President of the United States of America. If you do, I'd like to kind of know. That would be interesting to, to, to know. But I, I doubt any of you do. I, I don't. The President has limited access. Access means the ability, the right, or permission to approach. In fact, if the President's out in public, you can't just walk up to him. I dare you to try that someday. You'll get the beat down of your life. You don't have any evil intent. You just want to go shake his hand. But you try walking up to the president without permission. You're going to get a beat down. Secret Service won't let you anywhere near. But through Jesus Christ, we have the right, permission to approach, enter, speak with, admittance to the highest being in the world the creator of the universe, God Almighty. You see, access to God was not something the Jews or the Gentiles, and Paul is writing to both here, but specifically the Jews, it's not something the Jews traditionally enjoyed, and it's definitely not something the Gentiles would even consider of having. So if we go all the way back to the time of Moses and the Ten Commandments, the Jew knew he was separated from God, that he had no access to him. I want to read some of these verses for you in in Exodus chapter 19. And I want you to hear what the Jew understood about their relationship to God. Exodus 19, 12. God said, this is when Moses was going up on the mountain and receiving the Ten Commandments and the law of God. God said to Moses, "You you shall set boundaries for the people all around the mountain, saying... Take heed, be careful that you do not go up to the mountain or even touch its base. Whoever touches the mountain shall surely be put to death. Not a hand shall touch him, but he shall surely be stoned or shot with an arrow. Whether man or beast, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds long, they shall not come near the mountain. So here, get the picture. uh, God said, Moses set boundaries around the mountain. I don't want anybody coming near. If any man does come near and touches the mountain, you, whoever's left, can't go get him and and rescue him. They can't even touch him. In order, he's got to die. So what do you have to do? You got to shoot an arrow at him, or you got to throw stones at him. He's got to die. Now that's in the Jewish mind. We can't come near holiness, the presence of God. Look at verse twenty and twenty-one. 
Then the Lord came down upon Mount Sinai on the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down and warn the people, lest they break through to gaze at the Lord, and many of them perish. Verse 24 and 25. Then the Lord said to him, Away, get down, and then come to an Aaron with you, but do not let the priest and the people break through to come up to the mountain, come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and spoke to them. And again in chapter 20 and verse 18, all the people witnessed, this is as Moses was receiving the Ten Commandments, all the people witnessed the thunderings, the lightning flashes, the sound of the trumpet, the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they trembled. And what did they do? Stand far away. Verse 21 says, so the people stood far off, but Moses drew near the thick darkness where God was. In chapter 24 and verse 2, Moses alone, God said, shall come near the Lord. But they, the people, shall not come near, nor shall the people go up with him. So all this was in the mindset of the Jews. We can't come near God. God's holy. Now, this is written for our admonition. That's what the New Testament says. Hope you're not neglecting the Old Testament. Hope you don't think that the Old Testament is irrelevant. It's very relevant. It establishes the reason for the coming of Christ. God wanted to establish early on my holiness. I am holy. You can't just come any old way. You're sinful. You can't just rush into my presence without uh, an atonement, a sacrifice. Hence, we come to Exodus 25. In Exodus 25, in verse 17, we read about uh, God instructing Moses to build the tabernacle. And all the things God is, wants Moses to put in the tabernacle. And, of course, uh, in the middle is this place called the Holy of Holies. And it's separated from the rest of the tabernacle by curtains. And inside this Holy of Holies, this little small room, is, is an item called the Ark of the Covenant. You know about this. And then God tells Moses how to build the Ark. And then he talks about the mercy seat, which is basically the lid of the ark. And that's what I want to read for you now, chapter 25, verse 17. You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two and a half cubits shall be its length, and a cubit and a half its width. And you shall make two cherubim, that's angels, of gold, of hammered work. You shall make them at the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub at one end, the other cherub at the other end, you shall make the cherubim at the two ends of it of one piece with the mercy seat. And the cherubim shall stretch out their wings above, covering the mercy seat with their wings, and they shall face one another. The faces of the cherubim shall be toward the mercy seat. You shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony that I will give you. And then in chapter 26 we read about a little more. He says, you shall also hang the veil from the clasp. In other words, this is how to keep uh, people separated from the mercy seat, from the ark. You shall bring the ark of the testimony in there behind the veil. The veil shall be a divider for you between the holy place and the most holy. You shall put the mercy seat upon the ark of the testimony in the most holy. So I hope you're getting the picture here of what's happening uh, in this center court. Bobby, if you'd put up that next, uh, not the, well, never mind, not yet, not yet, not yet. I'll show you in just a moment. But picture the, the tabernacle, 
kind of like a, uh, an oblong structure, basically a tent. And in the middle is a tiny room called the Holy of Holies with the Ark of the Covenant. It's separated by this veil, okay? And on top of the Ark of the Covenant is a lid. On top of the lid, two angels facing each other and covered with gold. One day a year, one day a year, only on that one day can only one man go in that room. So you can, no, no priest could go in there. No Israelite could go in there. Only one man, the high priest, only one day a year, the Day of Atonement. Jews still observe that, Yom Kippur. And then he had to go in with blood, and he sprinkled the mercy seat, that lid of the ark with the blood of the spotless lamb. So that's what's happening here. Once a year, in the Holy of Holies, the high priest would do that to atone for the sins of a nation. But imagine what they felt, excitement in the camp. Excitement. This is the day where God's presence comes. And the Shekinah glory of God would fill that room and fill that tabernacle. And, and to think all Israel got to know that they still could not come in. So it was there on the mercy seat between the two angels above the Ark of the Covenant, that God revealed himself and was able to meet with a man. I want to quote something from Charles Stanley that he wrote that's something that I had never seen or thought of before, a correlation in the New Testament. He says, now fast forward to three days after the crucifixion. It was very early in the morning. Mary Magdalene and the other women had traveled to Jesus' tomb. John 20 tells us Mary stood outside the tomb weeping, and as she wept, she stooped down and she looked into the tomb, and she saw what? Two angels in white sitting. Where were they sitting? One at the head and one at the feet where Jesus had lain. Though Mary did not realize it at this time, what she was seeing was the wondrous fulfillment of the Old Testament mercy seat. The glory of God shone between those two angels. Only God's glory was not being revealed to a priest who came with an offering. Rather, it was being shown to a broken-hearted woman. Why would God put the mercy seat in the tomb? The interesting thing is that the mercy seat was the cover of the Ark of the Covenant. The word for ark in the Hebrew means coffin. God's glory appeared in the Old Testament above a coffin. To foreshadow for us that through Christ's sacrifice, burial, and resurrection, God's great victory had appeared over the tomb and over grave and over the death, over death. You see, Jesus had already become our high priest on the cross. He had already made the atonement offering for us, and we had already read that the veil in the temple had rent from top to bottom as Jesus was crucified. 
But now as this woman enters the tomb, the first visitor to the tomb, she sees the glory of God in these two angels, one at the head, one at the feet, being revealed to her. So in that whole picture of Jesus dying on the cross, the Lamb of God slain for our sins, and, and the picture of the veil being rent, and that was a 12-foot veil rent from top to bottom. No man could have done that. Any man could have rent it from bottom to top, but only God could do it from top to bottom, signifying access into the Holy of Holies. And then that picture is completed at the tomb. And they see these two angels sitting there, between, and then the glory of God revealed. All this pictures access, access. God was saying to the Jew, God was saying to the Gentile, God is saying to you and me today, through Jesus Christ, you have access. So the Jew was kept out of God's presence by the veil. But what about the Gentile? I want you to look on the screen at this graphic of the temple. It's kind of hard to see. It does, it's not square, but it's really more rectangular. Just to fit on this screen, it, it had to look square. But if you notice, I'm, I got this laser pointer, see if it works. There it is. All this right out here and the little borders all the way around. Okay, see that? That's the Gentile court. I'm sorry, not that, this one out here, the way outside. All that's the Gentile court. The Gentiles could not go anywhere in the middle of that temple. The women had to stay right here. Women, aren't you glad that you're not kept out anymore? Right? Women had to stay right here. The men could go right here. Okay? But only one person could go right there. There's the Holy of Holies right there in the center. High priest. So at the cross and at the tomb, at his resurrection, God is saying, all you Gentiles, all you women, all you men, all you people have direct access to me now. The Gentile could not worship anywhere but in that even if they converted to Judaism they couldn't go inside the temple they had to stay in that outer court it would be like you coming to church and we said sorry some of you got to wait outside and just peek in the window how would you feel would you want to come back here and uh, uh, the men have to sit all up front and the women will let you stay in the foyer how many of you women would come back that's the way it was. That's the way it was. The New Testament refers to this in Ephesians 2.14 as the wall of separation. Jesus, he says, himself is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation. So not only did Jesus rent the veil from top to bottom for the Jew to have access, now he has torn down this wall of separation and allowed the Gentiles to come into his presence. Listen to verse 17 through 19 of, of Ephesians 2. 
And Jesus came and preached peace to you who were afar off. Where did we hear that term before? Today. In Exodus. Where did the Jews have to stand at the base of the mountain? Afar off. Where is every sinner without Jesus Christ? Afar off. Now he comes and he preaches peace to those who are afar off and to those who were near. He's speaking of the Gentile and the Jew. For through him, Jesus, we both have access by one spirit to the Father. Now, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Jesus tore the veil and broke down the wall so that all who believe in him have full access to God. That's a blessing. Listen, you don't have to go through another man. You don't have to go through a priest, a preacher, a deacon. You, as a believer in Jesus Christ, have direct access to God Almighty. You say, don't I have to ask permission? No, permission's already been granted through Jesus Christ. Access. A child of the king can enter in God's presence anytime. By the way, God lives within you. So here's two questions. First of all, are you a child of the king? This access is not granted to you if you're not saved. It's offered, but it's not granted if you're not saved. If you're not saved, this access can be yours by trusting Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. Otherwise, you have no right to pray. Your prayers don't get any further than the roof of your mouth. God does not hear the prayers of the wicked. You say, I'm not wicked, I'm a good person. You're wicked in the eyes of God if you haven't come through the blood of Jesus Christ. Your prayers mean nothing to him. He doesn't hear them. Psalms tells us that, and so do other places in the Bible. He chooses not to listen to them. You have no access to him. Your worship is just an empty work. It doesn't count. Your good works, you're serving the poor, feeding the hungry, all that doesn't count. It's worthless. It doesn't add up to anything unless you've been born again. But children of the king have full access. You can have that if you place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. But I want to say this to those of you who are saved. Are you taking advantage of the blessings of this access? Hebrews 4.16 says, Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. In chapter 10, verse 19 to 22, Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, the holy of holies, by a new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart, in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Christians, think about it. The Creator, God Almighty, 
the all-wise, the Bible says, omniscient one, knows everything. Every detail of this world and this universe, every detail of your life down to the, he says, the hairs of your head. He says he knows your days before one of them ever came to be. He knows your future before you even had life. How many of you have spent an hour with him in the last 168? One hour out of a week's worth of living. How many? How many of you spend 15 minutes a day? How many of you have picked up the Word of God this week in order to receive instruction and just to hear from God because you want to listen to God? You want to hear what He's got to say? How many of you have had a problem or a burden this week that that you've needed wisdom and counsel from, and, and you've sought counsel and wisdom from friends and, and relatives and professionals, but how many of you brought, brought it to God first? You see, the problem is, is we Christians know this, and we amen these truths, but we don't take advantage of them like we should. If you knew that you had direct access to the President of the United States, and he would listen to you and pay attention to you and grant you some request, would you ignore that opportunity? Or would you be getting on an airplane and flying to Washington and, and just walking right in and sit down and say, President Trump, here's some things that, that I'm worried about about our country, and here's some things I'd like to do. How many of you would like that opportunity? How many of you would take advantage of that opportunity? Every one of us ought to. Well, we have someone who's bigger than that, who's more powerful than that, who's wiser than that, who knows more than that, more powerful than the President of the United States. We have God Almighty, but we just rush through our day. We don't have time for God. We got time for television. We got time for this stupid thing. We, th we get more information from Google than we get from God. Google this and Google that. How about God this and God that? Why don't you ask God instead of Google? And if you're not asking, so you're playing games on it, you're surfing the Internet, you're Facebooking, you're, you're uh, tweeting, you're uh, Instagramming it, you're Snapchatting it, you're this, that, and you're not talking to Jesus, the one who granted you access to the Almighty. It's getting personal, isn't it? Christians, it's one thing to say, yeah, I believe that, preacher, preach it. It's another thing to live it. Are you living in the presence of God? He, Jesus, died so you could have, and not just have whenever you want to, but live in His presence. To go before Him at any moment with any request for any need, and you would find grace you would find wisdom, you would find help, you would find strength, you would find everything you need. Christian, take advantage of this. Don't go through life ignoring 
the one who gave you life. You will not be any happier. You say, well, I'll have to give up time on Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat, the television, maybe even some sleep, the telephone, the whatever it is. Yeah, you will. But the benefits, the blessings far outweigh the sacrifice. You will have to sacrifice something to spend time with God. But you will not regret it. So Christian, yeah, you've been saved. But don't forget what you were saved from and don't forget what you were saved to. You were saved from sin and being a child of the devil. You naturally did the things of the world and the things of the devil then. But you're saved to Jesus Christ and a relationship with him. And it behooves a child of God to spend time with his father. So my challenge to you, church, is use the access you've been given. Use the access Jesus died to give you. And my message to those who are without Christ is come and have and enjoy the peace that only he can give you. And then take him up on this offer of access to help in your time of need. Would you bow your heads with me this morning?